The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This is so neat. They, uh, they told me because of my special needs that I couldn't have a roommate, which is kind of a letdown because a roommate is like an automatic built-in friend. And but then they told me that I was going to have a roommate. And so now I, I guess that's you. And um, um, Hi, I'm, I'm Cadet Sylvia Tilly. I talk when I'm nervous. Um, my instructors advise me to work on that. Why are you nervous? I'm trying to decide if I should tell you that you took my bed. Seriously? I know, they look the same, but um, I, I'm allergic to polyester and viscoelastic polyurethane foam. It results in chronic snoring. This is why I wasn't supposed to have a, a roommate. No problem. Welcome everyone, it is Thursday, October 12th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. How did I celebrate part of my Canadian Thanksgiving weekend? Well, were it not for the fact that I'm doing a follow-up on part of my weekend experience today, let me just say that there would have otherwise been several hours spent this past weekend that I will just never get back. (laughs) So in an effort to recoup my losses, I thought I would share with you the miserable experience I had when I sat down to watch the first three episodes of the new Star Trek Discovery series. Now, of course, there's a context here when discussing just how bad or good the debut of a Star Trek episode is, or new series. But apparently the real reason I hate the new Star Trek Discovery series so much is perhaps because of how much the left hates Donald Trump. Could that be possible? Is there a connection? Apparently there is. And we'll be taking a look at some of the evidence of this and other things as we head into the second half of our show today. But we'll be kicking off the conversation talking about, yes, Donald Trump himself, and more specifically, his first presidential address to the United Nations. Right after this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of Just Right's past broadcasts. Reads the headline in the National Post on the 20th of September, Rocket Man on a Suicide Mission, written by Harriet Alexander out of New York. I quote, Donald Trump threatened North Korea with total destruction using his debut United Nations speech Tuesday to warn hostile nations and defend his America First policy. Major portions of the world are in conflict, and some, in fact, are going to hell, said the U.S. president in a speech that began with talk of opportunity and promise, but then segued into warnings about the the wicked few who spread the evil, quote-unquote, referencing extremist authoritarian regimes and criminal networks. Trump described terrorists as, quote-unquote, losers, and sparked mirth when he referred to Kim Jong-un as the rocket man on a suicide mission. 
No one has shown more contempt for other nations and for the well-being of their own people than the depraved regime in North Korea, said Trump, accusing Kim of orchestrating starvation, torture, and murder. If this is not twisted enough, now North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles threatens the entire world with unthinkable loss of human life. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. End quote. And Trump, of course, stopped short of calling for regime change. Now, after having heard Trump's entire speech before the UN, I did something I very rarely do, and that was I posted it to my own personal Facebook with a very simple comment, and it read simply, finally, a voice of reason. Got a lot of likes for that, but also got a little bit of pushback. And one of them came from Doug F., who wrote, Reason is one of the things this man is in very short supply of. SMH, shaking my head, okay? And I said, to suggest, quote-unquote, reason is one of the things that Trump's in short supply of seems unreasonable, based on what evidence? Well, so much for the messenger. Which part of Trump's message did you find unreasonable and why, I asked? Got a response from a Kathy B. who said, He's a dictator, the first dictator of the United States. Heaven help us with this madman at the helm. And, you know, I, I see comments like that, and I just don't know what to say, so I said this, you know. Let's assume, just for the sheer outrageous lunacy of it, that Trump is indeed the first dictator of the United States, quote-unquote. That would mean that nobody voted for him, and that he just took office by military force. <laughs> Obviously not true, and too ridiculous to even attempt any rational response. But even worse, to call Trump a dictator in these days and times, is to morally equate him and his clear opposition to dictatorships around the world with those di dictatorships. You see, the, you see the horrible moral equivalence that's being made here? I, I think that's unconscionable. And again, it avoids any effort to substantiate such a ridiculous conclusion. If dictatorship is indeed undesirable then Trump is the world's only clear opposition to dictatorship in the world today. That's the last thing I ever thought I'd be saying in my life. But that's why dictators and all potential dictators over the world, they hate Trump. With good reason. Still waiting for something that might resemble a fact or evidence that would justify such an opinion. Well, Doug F. wrote back and he wrote, My negative opinion of your voice of reason stems from his comments on North Korea. Certainly the U.S. has the right to defend itself and its allies, and yes, North Korea has been aggressive and hostile to its neighbors with rocket launches over J Japanese airspace and nuclear testing. Let's look at the facts. We have a rogue leader that has no problems with killing his own countrymen. What we want is a peaceful resolution, and yes, Trump said that a peaceful resolution through the UN is a goal, but also threatened to totally destroy the country. Sorry, if you were the leader of North Korea, everything he said after that comment is inconsequential. A true voice of reason would not make threats like that and expect a positive outcome. <laughs> and he says, still shaking his head. Well, you know, I think Doug's fears were very speculative and quite unfounded to the greater degree. What is being missed here is the context of Trump's speech. Trump is not negotiating. He's giving a clear warning, one that he will undoubtedly follow through on or would not be announcing it to the world. It'll have no effect whatever on the rocket man's agenda, which, like 
political Islam continues on its agenda and course unabated, thanks to a world that has, up until Trump, aided and abetted dictators the world over, just like this guy. Better still, Trump made it clear in his UN speech the clear difference between the moral objectives of the United States and the immoral objectives of all the world's dictators, which includes all politicians of the left, all opposed to freedom of, you know, or capitalism, because freedom and capitalism do not offer them something for nothing, doesn't let you steal. So it's very simple. Then we got a, then we got a response from uh, Joe R., who wrote, the USA is the biggest instigator of war on this planet. They have invaded more countries than any other known to date. The U.S. is currently occupying seven countries illegally. The U.S. has 23 military bases surrounding Iran and calls Iran an aggressor? It's the same with Russia. How many military bases does Russia have surrounding the USA? None. The warmongering that comes out of the U.S. is unprecedented, and anyone who doesn't continue to use U.S. dollars eventually gets invaded as Iraq, Libya, and Syria did. Next will either be Venezuela or Iran. Wow. <laughs> Joe, please. <laughs> you know, I get a lot of comments that sound very much like this comment from Joe. And I don't, it just shows how confused people are about everything. You know, every, it's difficult to respond to such an irrational and incorrect view of world affairs. What can one really say? to someone who believes that up is down, that evil is good, or that good is evil, or that it doesn't even matter. I suppose one could spend hours and hours and hours of time to refute this with objective evidence and context, but of course we've already done this. The problem with dictators around the world is that they believe they should be entitled to the benefits of freedom and capitalism with allowing, without allowing freedom or capitalism in their own jurisdictions. Hence, their hatred of the West, meaning the United States primarily, and described by Ayn Rand as a hatred of the good for being the good. It is also why it is they, not the United States, who are the world's true warmongers. People use American dollars not because they're forced to, but because America is the most productive nation in the world, and that gives the American dollar its strength. The inflated, devalued currencies of countries like Venezuela are the consequence of their own false political beliefs and practices. So, Joe writes back, right, all those wars were just our imagination. Well, uh, I just couldn't carry on the conversation after that retort. Yeah, just your imagination. I think maybe they were. Finally, turning to Trump's speech itself. He writes, No one has shown more contempt for other nations and for the well-being of their own people than the depraved regime in North Korea. It is responsible for the starvation deaths of millions of North Koreans and for the imprisonment, torture, killing, and oppression of countless more. If this is not twisted enough... Now, North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles threatens the entire world with unthinkable loss of human life. It is an outrage that some nations would not only trade with such, re such a regime, but would arm, supply, and financially support a country that imperils the world with nuclear conflict. No nation on earth has an interest in seeing this band of criminals arm itself with nuclear weapons and missiles. The United States has great strength and patience, but if forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. 
Donald Trump gets criticized a lot for his criticisms of other nations and his take on the, the world situation. Maybe to help give us some idea if indeed Trump does know what he's talking about, here are a few minutes from what was a two-part hour-long interview by Dave Rubin of the Rubin Report of October 4th, 2017, and Michael Malice, who, after having visited North Korea in 2012, wrote a book about it. He's a columnist, media personality, and author of Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. And remember, Kim is the family name. <laughs> it's not the first name. So Kim Jong-il was born in the World War II and died in 2011. So in my book, as he tells the story of his life, he's actually telling the whole history of North Korea. Because like Forrest Gump, he's everywhere where something important happens. <laughs> when he took over for his father, the founder of North Korea, great leader Kim Il-sung, his campaign slogan, people think it's a joke, it's not, was, do not expect any change from me. So their whole principle is this Mount Pic to bloodline, which goes from father to son to grandson now, is a continuous process that's going to bring forth the revolution through the generations. So Kim Jong when people make fun of his hair, haircut. His haircut's that of his grandfather from the 40s because he's harkening back to that era and showing this kind of sense of continuity through the golden era of when North Korea was actually competitive with the South. So what else do we know just personality-wise? Because I think there's such a cult of personality around him. You know, people say, well, him and Trump, it's like the match made in hell because they're, they're both erratic. They're both boisterous and they love headlines and all of this. Stuff. I haven't seen anything he's done that's erratic at all. Uh, I, for example, only by North Korean law, only someone who's a descendant of Kim Il-sung can be the leader, right? So Kim Jong-un is the youngest of three brothers. When he killed his eldest brother, Kim Jong-nam, who was passed over, that was an insurance policy. There's no Mike Pence there. Yeah, can you just tell that story a little bit? Because this, this was just a couple years ago, right? No, this was a couple months ago in the airport. Oh. Didn't he kill, but there was another brother? No, he, he killed, killed his, his uncle. uncle. His he uncle, killed his sorry. uncle. Well, so he had originally killed his uncle. But his uncle wasn't up for uh, the leadership position. Right. But what, what happened when Kim Jong-il took over in 94 and when Kim Jong-un took over in 2011, what they did is have purges and killed or, you know, made them, sent, exported them or sent them the countryside, people who were loyal, loyal to their father. Mm -hmm. When people ask, well, why doesn't someone just put a bullet in him? The people at the top are there, be, not because of their skills, but because of their loyalty to the man personally. Mm -hmm. So the, it's like the idea of like you know, John Podesta telling Hillary Clinton, you know, you should probably resign. It's, it will never happen <laughs> under any circumstances. And especially because if you do try that, you will, your family will have consequences. Right. It's even crazier than that. Because basically all of their power resides in that man, not Correct. in the system. So that, yes. that's an interesting and important distinction. Right. So, and, and the point I always make when people are like, oh, he's this crazy person. If you look at Gaddafi, if you look at Saddam Hussein, if you look at Romania, Ceausescu, who's very inspired by North Korea by his own admission, when these leaders go down, they're usually shot, or, and with good reason. So yeah. even if he wanted to kind of step away from the gun, I mean, that gun's going to be turned on him immediately. Yeah. Uh, although they kept you away from the average person, how much of outside world ideas can actually seep through? Increasingly, thanks to cell phones, thanks to people being refugees and, and memory sticks, people are getting an understanding of the outside world in North Korea, which is also very healthy. They used to be taught that South Korea, you know, they, they have to wear gas masks because of the pollution and that the women are raped by American soldiers in order to give them AIDS and things like this. And now you just look across the Tumen River into China in these towns and you're like, they have electricity at night, why don't we? And it, it, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So I sense that your prescription for all this would be that it will crumble under its own weight, not only because of everything that you've just described, but also technology will eventually oh, yes. 
it can't, they can't stop it with borders. They, yeah, they can shut the internet, but there's just a zillion other ways now. There's this great qu- quote from either Steinbeck or Faulkner, I always forget, and it, he says, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer was two ways, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> so this is exactly how the Soviet Union came down, because in this, during the 80s, you had all these women in Russia watching Dallas and Dynasty and saying, why on this show does the maid have a fur coat and I'm wiping my ass with literal newspaper? Mm-hmm. And it's as simple as that. You can tell people Kim Jong Moon is the greatest thing since sliced bread or sliced kimchi, whatever you want to call it. Mm. At the end of the day, you want your kid to have food. And if this other alternative is, I'm going to have food for my children, it's as simple as that. So does some of this explain what's going on with all of these missile tests lately, that this is creating some sort of crisis which allows him to double down on power? It's not is a that, crisis. This is Well, the, an appearance of a crisis. No, least. from their... Look, so Kim Jong-il, uh, the leading philosophy of North Korea is the Juche idea, which is invented by Kim Il-sung. Kim Jong-il changed that to the Sun Gun idea, which means military first. And what he meant is the military is the basis of our country, which preserves all the other freedoms that we have. And he said, in order to fight the American eagle and the Chinese dragon and the Russian bear, I have to turn North Korea into a hedgehog. And what he meant by this is an animal with missiles in every direction. And and Kim Jong-nam, the eldest son, wanted to demilitarize. And Kim Jong-un said, no, 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 it's these missiles that are going to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. So look at it from his perspective. He's a country the size of Pennsylvania. He has gotten the entire UN against him. He's making a fool of America on a daily basis and laughing about it in the photos. And he's saying, look, we're tiny, and look how strong I've made us. And these U.S. imperialists, as they call us, who tried to kill us during the Korean War and are biding their time to come back and kill us all, I'm the one keeping us safe. So it's not even a crisis so much as it's more of a crisis. Our reaction is much more of a crisis because we're all hysterical. And he's like, ha, 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 what are you going to do about it? Right. That's interesting. So our reaction is a crisis because you're because basically you're saying everything that he's doing is very logical within, oh, yeah. the, within the system that he's doing things. Yes. It all makes sense. So that's not a crisis. How we deal with it without understanding a lot of the things you're talking about is the actual crisis. So when these tests go off, you think this is just more showboating sort of to, to double down on that, right? Well, it's both. It's also commercial. So North Korea has always complained about how is it the United States is the biggest arms deal in the world and we don't have the right to sell our arms. So by doing this, they can show every little dictator, look how good our weaponry is and it's going to be available for sale and look what it can do to America. And it'll, you know, it'll be the best kind of home security system you're ever going to have. Yeah, it's kind of funny because... Obviously, you're talking about so many things that are really wrong in terms of human rights, Pure what evil. freedom is, and the things that you yes. really care about. They are very bright people, and they are very evil people. So I always talk about this, uh, compare it to, like your comic book, the Batman villain, the Joker, because people see the clown, but that clown has a lot of bodies behind them, and that clown has pulled off a lot of stunts in his day. So the idea that he's this silly idiot it's like this silly idiot they've been around for 70 years if they're suicidal they're doing a really bad job of it and they've outlasted everyone except for cuba yeah you know it's interesting that's one of the things that i i've come around on trump the idea of trump at least when all these people all day long he's such an idiot he's making these decisions every two seconds if if that's actually true and he became president like that then we're all just the worst suckers (laughs) ever you know what i mean like then what does that say about the rest of us actually 
thing. And I talk about this very heavily in my book because when you go there, they brag about their strategy. So, you know, Kim Jong-il is very boastful of his techniques and they've been very effective because when he took over in 1994, they mentioned Krauthauer by name in their literature. Like, they all think it's not going to last another six months and now right. it's 2017 and they're still there. So, despite all the predictions, despite all the claims that these people are stupid and crazy and incompetent, Kim Jong-un's hold on power is pretty strong and this is not an accident. This is at the cost of humanity and at cost of human life and the cost of anything that you and I hold uh, decent and moral. So when we hear all this back and forth these days and we hear about the hydrogen bomb and everything else, I sense basically you think that this is probably just posturing on both sides and nothing really is going to happen. I think we're right? playing chicken and both cars are going at each other at the speed that, that they can and it's going to be a question of who blinks first and what it's going to take to blink. Wow, so that's a lot scarier than my question. Yeah, it's not just po I mean, he is built, militarizing and building up these weaponry. That's not just posturing. Do you think Trump has the capacity, either mental or otherwise, to deal with this game of chicken? I, or would, is there someone else that you would have preferred? That I don't think anyone that? has a good answer to this issue, including me. But I'm very heartened by hearing Rex Tillerson and Mattis and all these other people saying, and Bannon recently said it, you know, he goes, we all know that military conflict with North Korea would be absolutely catastrophic. You see some conservatives saying, Kim Jong-un insulted us, so therefore we should bomb his country into oblivion. You're going to take the moral high ground and kill 25 yeah. million slaves because someone insulted you? No. Go to hell. So there's a very strong understanding in the White House that military conflict would be the worst co possible course. Yeah. And of course, that was Michael Malice. Some very interesting insights into what it's like inside North Korea. You might want to give that whole interview a check out on the Rubin Report of October 4th, 2017. Turning now from North Korea a little bit back to the United Nations, very interesting what Trump said before the UN. And I think Christy Blatchford pretty well summarized it excellently in her column of September 22nd. Quote, Trump spoke the ugly truth to the UN, she wrote in the London Free Press and, of course, National Post of the same day. Quote, unfashionable and hazardous as it is to say this, I'm with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who tweeted on Tuesday after U.S. President Donald Trump's inaugural speech to the United Nations, quote, in over 30 years in my experience with the UN, I never heard a bolder or more courageous speech, end quote. Moi non plus, she writes. <laughs> Israel is, of course, the target of more vicious UN resolutions than any other country in the world. The consistent anti-Israel actions of the UN, however grotesque, aren't the half of it. Remember Rwanda, where Canadian Major General Romeo Deliar, as he was then, and his tiny, ill-equipped and mostly ill-prepared band of peacekeepers, ten of whom were slaughtered along with 800,000 Rwandians became the ghastly symbol of all that is terribly wrong with the UN. As Post Media's David Pugilese first reported in 2002, the piece was reprinted this summer, that 1994 UN mission was actively hindered by, no surprise, the UN. Political staff and civilian police both worked only 8 to 5, with the usual two-hour break for lunch. The UN logistics system, which was supposed to supply the soldiers, was an abysmal failure. 
Of 300 military vehicles shipped to Rwanda, 220 were broken when they arrived, and the other 80 couldn't be fixed when they broke down because there were no spare parts and the mission had no mechanics. The promised helicopters never arrived, etc., etc. You get the general point. What a disaster the UN is. Most leaders who speak at the UN, she writes, as Canada's Justin Trudeau did Thursday, adopt an uber-respectful tone the organization richly doesn't deserve. The PM speech, a mea culpa really for Canada's past wrongs against Indigenous people, was what the UN loves to see. Trump called it as it is, in delicious plain language rocket man for the deranged North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, and rogue regimes which aren't only represented at the UN, but which often are the leading foxes in the henhouse. And speaking of that particular analogy, let's go back half, half a century and see what was being thought about the United Nations back then. And this is Ayn Rand writing in the 60s about the, the United Nations in her essay, The Anatomy of Compromise. Quote, Psychologically, the United Nations has contributed a great deal to the gray swamp of demoralization, of cynicism, bitterness, hopelessness, fear, and nameless guilt, which is swallowing the Western world. But the communist world has gained a moral sanction, a stamp of civilized respectability from the Western world. It has gained the West's assistance in deceiving its victims. It has gained the status and prestige of an equal partner, thus establishing the notion that the difference between human rights and mass slaughter is merely a difference of political opinion. That sounds like something that Jordan Peterson would have said. That's one of the conclusions he drew out. You know, this, politics is not just about differing opinions. There's realities at the end of these opinions. The declared goal of the communist countries is the conquest of the world, she writes. What they stand to gain from a collaboration with the relatively free countries is the latter's material, financial, scientific, and intellectual resources. The free countries have nothing to gain from the communist countries. Therefore, the only form of common policy or compromise possible between two such parties is the policy of property owners who make piecemeal concessions to an armed thug in exchange for his promise not to rob them. That's exactly what's going on with North Korea. Almost verbatim. The UN has delivered a larger part of the globe's surface and population into the power of the Soviet Russians than Russia could ever hope to conquer by armed force. The treatment accorded to Katanga versus the treatment accorded to Hungary is a sufficient example of UN policies. An institution allegedly formed for the purpose of using the united might of the world to stop an aggressor has become the means of using the united might of the world to force the surrender of one helpless country after another into the aggressor's power. Who but a concrete-bound epistemological savage could have expected any other results from such an experiment and collaboration? What would you expect from a crime-fighting committee whose board of directors included the leading gangsters of the community? 
When an institution reaches the degree of corruption, brazen cynicism, and dishonor demonstrated by the UN in its shameful history, to discuss it at length is to imply that its members and supporters may possibly be making an innocent error about its nature, which is no longer possible. There is no margin for error about a monstrosity that was created for the alleged purpose of preventing wars by uniting the world against any aggressor, but proceeded to unite it against every victim of aggression. The expulsion of a charter member, the Republic of China, an action forbidden by the UN's own charter, was a moment of truth, a naked display of the United Nations soul. What was Red China's qualification for membership to the UN? The fact that her government seized power by force and has maintained it for 22 years by terror. What disqualified nationalist China? The fact that she was a friend of the United States. End quote. Well, I'll just take a bit of what Ayn Rand wrote about the UN half a century ago and mix it with some of the observations made by Christy Blatchford today. And I think you've got a pretty clear idea of what the UN's really all about. Well, another dream that was once much like the United Nations was something called the Federation. And yes, I'm speaking of the world created by Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek, which is now itself falling into the same evil forces as the United Nations. And apparently, Donald Trump can be found at the center of both of these phenomenon. Yes, it's true. We'll be turning our discussion now to the long-awaited release of the next Star Trek television series called Discovery. And what I've discovered has me feeling anything but knowledgeable about the new series. It was, it was just simply terrible. And I know not everyone's going to agree with me, but I have found some people who sure do. And so to share my misery over the new series with you, for the next several minutes, I'll be leaving you at the mercy of two critics who pretty much said almost everything that I would have said, except that I still have a lot more to add of my own. So on this side of our upcoming bumper, I'll be leaving you at the mercy of Dave Cullen from the Dave Cullen Show of September 27 in a very much edited and expletive deleted excerpt from his review of Star Trek Discovery. It's a little bit on the more political side of objections to the new series than it is to the work itself, although he did a lot of that. These are just clips. Now, on the other side of the bumper, coming back, we'll be hearing from Jeff Holliday, who pretty well tops off just about how I felt when I was watching Star Trek Discovery. Not good. Well, Star Trek Discovery is a product of not only the current progressive leftist Hollywood zeitgeist, but very much a product of its own long-standing obsession with identity politics. I've been a fan since I was four years old, and I can honestly say that in all previous incarnations, the show's focus on race was always fairly low level. It wasn't something that detracted from the quality of the stories. Star Trek Discovery is the first Star Trek show to take this obsession with racial diversity to such a degree so as to be full-blown anti-white, and I'm really not exaggerating. This is coming from the writers and the cast. They openly admit to this, and I'm going to get to their statements in a moment. The first episode opens with a weird-ass-looking alien shouting to his people about how the Federation are beginning to encircle their territory and how that's not okay. Oh, by the way, this alien is, um, he's a Klingon. And this is what Klingons look like now? Fucking unbelievable. They literally bastardize everything about Star Trek on this show. And yes, I know Klingon makeup changed a couple of times in the franchise over the years, but seriously, this is just insulting to the fans, and it was totally unnecessary. I'm, I'm sorry, this, these aren't Klingons. 
Just fuck off. Oh, by the way, they speak in Klingon all the freaking time. All the time. Now, previously, when Klingon spoke in Klingon, it was used pretty sparingly. As a convention of film and television, when a character is speaking in their native language, in their language other than English, for a moment, they introduce the audience to the fact that a character is not speaking English, and then begin speaking English. This was done several times to good effect in Star Trek VI. They're actually still speaking their own language, it's just that it's easier for the viewer if they hear English. Audiences understand this convention of TV and film. The writers and producers of Star Trek Discovery clearly don't. You have to read whole chunks of English subtitles for entire scenes. And Klingon is just awful to listen to long term. The Klingon scenes are a real chore to get through on this show. I gave thought to turning it off several times, I was that bored. Long story short, it's the Klingons. They're led by a character called Tukuvma, who is determined to unite the 24 houses of the Empire against the Federation. He's concerned that the Federation will destroy the individuality of Klingon culture. So you can see what's happening. Star Trek has always made use of allegory in its political messaging. This time is no different, except that modern progressive anti-Trump Hollywood is in charge. You see, the Klingons represent, wait for it, and I'm not making this up. If you haven't seen this, you won't believe what I'm about to say. But it's true, okay? And I have evidence of this. The Klingons represent white nationalists. I'm not making this up. This is from the producers themselves. Now, the left believes Trump is a white nationalist, and he isn't. Anyway, the Klingons are concerned with the Federation's multicultural philosophy and are rightly concerned that they'll be ethnically cleansed by the encroachment of the United Federation of Planets. They wish to remain Klingon, which is their rallying cry. Seems reasonable enough. The writers use this slogan, Remain Klingon, as a stand-in for Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again. This is true. Aaron Haberts, a co-executive producer on the show, told the outlet that Donald Trump's candidacy was front and center in our minds when they started putting the series together in 2015. Haberts said one of the antagonist groups on Star Trek Discovery is an extremist Klingon sect whose rallying cry, Remain Klingon, the show made intentionally similar to Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. It's a call to isolationism, Hubbard said of the slogan. What's wrong with that? It's about racial purity. It's about wanting to take care of yourself. What's wrong with wanting to take care of yourself? And if anybody is reaching a handout to help you, it's about smacking it away. That was pretty provocative for us, he continued. And it wasn't necessarily something that we wanted to completely lean into, but it was happening. We were hearing the stories. In other words, a race of aliens in the future are not allowed to live in isolation if they choose to. They should be shamed for wishing to remain true to their own culture. They're concerned by the encroachment of the Federation and how it might dilute that culture and identity. So the Federation has more in common with the Borg in this show because of its intolerance for actual culture and racial diversity. You will be assimilated. So I ask you, who exactly are the bad guys in this story? But racism is back on the agenda in Star Trek now, because we live in 2017 and progressives see racism everywhere, especially where it doesn't exist. That's why anti-white sentiment is rife in social justice-infested college campuses, and racial segregation is being called for under the guise of inclusion. I have to be honest, I hate the fact that I'm having to discuss this show like this, in these terms of race and diversity and the lack of white people, particularly white men. It's a toxic conversation. I would much rather focus on the characters and the story. To be fair, 
There's not much of either here. I know many people may say how I'm being overly critical and that previous Star Trek pilots weren't always up to much. But even the lackluster and rather boring encounter at Farpoint of the next generation had redeemable qualities to it. It had humor, levity, an endearing warmth, a thought-provoking plot, decent characters with the exception of Wesley. I couldn't believe how one-dimensional the Discovery characters were. This Burnham chick has two gears, intense brooding and semi-constipated judgmental angry mode. Also, the actress is really unsuited to this role. I don't like her performance at all. There's no camaraderie between the characters, nothing relatable about them, no relationships to become invested in. The show is written so poorly, the actors just rattle off dialogue in a really fast-paced manner as to just get through the scenes and get them over and done with. Nobody speaks like this in the real world. It's not believable. It's also one-dimensional, wooden, and forced. They're like robots. There's nothing hopeful, thought-provoking, or optimistic, or intelligent about this plot. We've seen all of this kind of stuff before. It's just a series of action scenes and haphazardly written exposition dialogue that just feels rushed. The whole affair feels joyless, and that's really the best way I can describe it. There's no humor, no color, or depth. I literally had a bad taste in my mouth after watching these two episodes. It's not Star Trek. It's a subpar sci-fi show that pisses over the legacy of the franchise. It makes use of Star Trek iconography, terms, jargon, place names, and sound effects. <laughs> it's a leftist propaganda project masquerading as your once-beloved TV series. At no point in this series does the main character ever do anything right. Everything that she does is a complete fuck up. Everything. How am I supposed to have any compassion or root for a person who has fucked every single part of all of her missions up? How am I supposed to cheer for this person? How? I don't. What is wrong with the writers of this show? So we're getting a Star Trek show. But instead of it being any kind of Star Trek show at all, in every way, it ruins, ruins the spirit of the show, takes it from a many-character-driven space opera, turns it into a crappy, long, protracted, boring sci-fi action movie with a main character that we can't stand, who makes every wrong decision. Apparently she never makes it to prison. She's gonna be instead working on a starship. Nobody likes her. Nobody trusts her. Why? 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 I mean Jason Isaacs who apparently is going to be the new captain. I, I imagine he'll be he'd probably be pretty interesting He's a good actor I'm a little irritated that he recently said he wishes he could take a knee in the spirit of Gene Roddenberry. That's just That's a little cringy man. It's Mm, mm -mm. But ultimately, yeah, there you go. That's the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. It's shit. Terrible. The writing is god-awful. There is no set design. There's nothing iconic about it. Nothing really to be remembered except that it was bad. They butcher the Klingons. They butcher the very basic premise of a Star Trek show. They turn it into something that is entirely, entirely different than anything we've ever seen in this series. And it's an uncomfortable transition. I'm willing to experience something new. I absolutely am, but it has to be something still somewhat akin to what I knew before. And this is abrasive and it's abrupt and it's forcing me to try and care about somebody that is utterly uncareable about. 
utterly unlikable. Okay, think about it like this. You want to have a black woman as your main lead for uh, your Star Trek show, and because you want it to be progressive, hey, fine. Star Trek's all about being progressive and pushing the boundaries and getting new territory uncovered. That's fine. And let's say even if you want to get like a, an actress from a very popular TV show like The Walking Dead, why would you get the character that nobody even remembers what her name is? All she does is runs around with the same damn expression and acts like a bitch. Why? She's not likable. She's not relatable. Why didn't you get Michonne? Michonne's a badass. And she's a really good actress. She's relatable. This, this was shit. This was awful. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> oh man, I had more fun and entertainment listening to that review than I could possibly have had watching Discovery. At least that's my experience. Before we continue, I have to remind you that you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And it is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And of course, some things that are wrong with certain TV shows. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I had my own debate going this weekend over the series Star Trek Discovery. And it all started when my daughter, Danielle, sent me an email with links to the two reviews that we just heard by Dave Cullen and Jeff Holliday, and uh, both of whom I'm really not all that familiar with. But after hearing the reviews, plus a few scenes that they previewed, I did something I don't usually do, if it's really important anyway, and that's to make up my mind on a third party's opinion, even if I listen to what you might have called a second opinion in the process. I was hoping to save some time by not watching this series because I really wasn't expecting much of it. Though despite anything you hear me say about it today, and it's not going to be pleasant, I still have not given up, you know, <laughs> on some kind of Star Trek series emerging from the smoke and mirrors. You know, like some of these fans, I'm a Trekkie too, and I'd like to see Star Trek be successful. So I sent out this email. And I passed it along to my good friends, a couple of good friends, including someone you all know, and that's Paul McKeever, who's both co-hosted and been a guest on this show. And he didn't take too kindly to my making up my mind without having checked it out first. But I did write to him. I said, I said, looks like I won't even be trying to watch the new Star Treks. They look unwatchable, just on the face of it. The left has destroyed the value of the franchise with this one. Dave Cullen pretty much called it on the new Star Trek worse than anything I could have expected. And, of course, Paul wrote back. He said, look, I, re I recommend to all at least do this. Watch the show. <laughs> okay. And he did not like the reviews. I think he kind of liked the show. Paul has never been a great fan of Star Trek. He doesn't even know all the series. You recall the last time he co-hosted, he got the characters of two series mixed up because he's never really watched them. And Paul wrote, it's not the 60s or the 90s anymore. 
But he said, these guys clearly want the Star Trek fans of those eras to be the ones that prevail today. Look, watch the show. Don't judge the show first. Watch the show. And he says, here's what you'll find. The elimination of all campiness. Talking about campy, not working today. And he talked about how this Star Trek serves up a TV version of what we're seeing in the new Star Trek TV movies. I kind of get that. But delivered with the needs of securing a TV show in mind. That means, one, you have to start with action. And he compares this to the opening episode of Lost, which I cannot compare it to in any way. He says, two, you have to identify the most prominent character and begin, begin, mind you, he says, the process of acquainting the viewer with the character. And three, you have to leave the audience hanging for the next episode. Well, none of those things worked for me, and I certainly didn't feel like I was left hanging for the next episode. I wanted this thing to end. (laughs) And he also added, he'll say this thing about the Klingons. They're perfect for what's going on today. Yes, they're species supremacists, but when did Klingons ever come across as not believing themselves to be the master race? Well, that's true of a lot of species in Star Trek, including the Romulans. But why do you have to change them? What is the point of changing them? This is is not what the argument's about. The argument is, why are you changing an already established vehicle just to tell a different story? If you want to tell a different story, change the vehicle. Why is it necessary to mess up the Star Trek fans' world so that you can tell your story on top of their vehicle? I, I don't see this as being honest. You know, and Paul suggests, like many people do, and he found other critics that said the same thing, if you want a rehash of the 60s and 90s TV Star Treks, don't bother watching this show. So you can see Paul is looking for a different kind of show. And it's not what I would call Star Trek. So I wrote him back after torturing myself for three hours to watch the three episodes. And I wrote and I said, I have watched the first three episodes and I must say that the first two were among the worst and most boring episodes of almost any show in any genre that I forced myself to watch in many a year. Sorry, simply unwatchable for me. Torturous. All the way through I was saying to myself, please end this soon. (laughs) The third episode actually had a few moments of dialogue in it. That's what we heard on the opening clip today, but then quickly deteriorated into more boredom for me. It was just boring. I agree with every criticism made by the critics cited, who only saw the first two at the time of their their reviews. In fact, I think they were far too kind in many regards. They are Trekkies, let's face it. Now, what they said on their in their criticisms was exactly how I felt and how I reacted to the show as well. So clearly, there are two opposite camps in this whole observation of the new Star Trek series. I, myself, and no one I know, is trying to give the impression that we want the 60s and the 90s and the old-fashioned Star Treks back. Nobody's asking for that. And I don't think either of the reviewers has suggested that either. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now, I didn't expect the 60s or even 90s brand of Star Trek with The Next Generation or with Deep Space Nine or with Voyager or with Enterprise. As Star Trek series, they all passed the test of identity and presented a generally consistent Star Trek environment, history, and context, and very excellent scripts. Those series still stood the test of time and of Star Trek worthiness. Each series, having produced more than its fair share, I think, of standalone masterpiece episodes. 
Even the worst of any of the previous treks far surpasses what Discovery revealed in its first three episodes. Not to say it's, it isn't going to get better or that it can't get better. But it just doesn't look good right now from the setup. Paul made an interesting suggestion to me, and this might affect a lot of people. It's been made by a few other critics of people who are criticizing people like me. And he said, because Paul knows me, okay, he says, it occurs to me that it may be the serialized nature of the show, of any show that you're not that fond of, Bob, he writes. And then he, re- he reminded me how I hated Lord of the Rings, what I saw of it. <laughs> and I tend not to finish many other serials, even if I like them at the beginning. This is true. He's even blaming me for Black Sails, which I have to admit I still haven't finished, but I'm going to finish it, and I'm, I haven't given up on it. It's just a matter of time, and that's part of the problem, I guess. Here's what he's really saying. He's saying, I'm betting that the Trek fans who hate Discovery will tend to be people who simply don't like stories that aren't all sewn up in each episode. Looking for a series of crisis, then a climax, then an all-resolving denouement, they will be sadly disappointed. Meanwhile, those who like serialized approach of more recent TV successes, spearheaded by The Sopranos and other shows like Breaking Bad, Lost, Sons of Anarchy, The Walking Dead, etc., will fall into the opposing camp of Trekkies. We'll see, or at least some of us will, he said. That I know he's not alone in liking the show, okay? I, I spent some time with my family this weekend and my sister and her beau. They said they had watched all three episodes and liked them. And, you know, by the way, Paul, if you're listening, for the record, I did finish watching Lord of the Rings, the first movie. After about my third or fourth forcing through it, I still found it boring. And, you know, as you say, to each his own, and I get that. Even as a standalone work, you know, even if it was nothing to do with Star Trek, Discovery was the kind of sci-fi series that, to me, seems like a dime a dozen, very action-oriented. I, I couldn't even tell you what the story was about. I, I just didn't care enough to care. Very typical of many others I can't bring myself to watch, despite being a sci-fi fan. Nevertheless, much of what Paul has said about my expectations regarding the serialized nature of a given show is actually right on target, and is in fact part of both my objections to and praises for a given serial. And I guess with me it's all about my obsession with identity. I do like a series, quote-unquote, for remaining true to its roots, in that sense of the word series. And that's the thing that assumably is what attracts loyal viewers to it in the first place, being true to its roots. Though not meant to become a noose around the development of a series, which fortunately didn't happen like with M.A.S.H. or with the earlier Star Treks, it is the restrictions and limits placed upon these given series that often define and make interesting and set a standard for every given story placed within the reality of that given series. Even if it's fiction, there's a reality within it, including its you know, own theme, its history, and consistency, none of which existed in this series. How can you call it Star Trek? So, coming up next on this side of the break, a last word from Jeff Holliday on his whole Discovery experience, while on the other side of the break, you'll be hearing the following four voices, all from the Star Trek The Next Generation series. And in this order, you'll be hearing David Livingston, who's producer of the series, Ronald D. Moore, one of the writers and fans, Michael Piller, executive producer, and, of course, Jonathan Frakes, who played Commander Riker. 
Now, there's a lot of other things that I could get into. Uh, some of the, the retcons and, and completely butchering some of the timeline in Star Trek. But honestly, it just, it's irrelevant. It's utterly irrelevant. As a show, just judging it on the basis of a show. This is, a, this is the worst Star Trek show I have ever seen. Flat out. The worst. It's worse than Enterprise. And as a non-Star Trek sci-fi show, it's just bad. It's just bad. It's cringy and it's boring and it's, it's uninteresting. The only reason why it ever happened in the first place is because they managed to attach an IP's name to it that people really love. That's the only reason why anybody's going to give this a fair shot or because they're just ham-fisting their own f***ing progressivism into it. Which is weird because there's nothing really that progressive about it. I mean, you have this proud black American actor and the first thing you do in the series is you throw her in jail. <laughs> you make her a complete f up and then you throw her in jail. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. Ooh. Now look, I'll add this again because I said it at the beginning and I'll, I'll, I'll say it again. If you enjoyed this show, I understand. It's totally fine. I am... I'm a Star Trek snob. I really honestly am. I'm not a snob about most things. I usually find movies that, that movie reviewers think are terrible. I, I think they're great. I enjoy them a lot. I like mindless, stupid, fun little movies. I, I'm not really that nitpicky. Except when it comes to Star Trek. I have extremely high standards. Really, really high standards. So if you enjoyed it, that's totally cool. This is just my point of view. These are the problems that I see with it. I have to point them out because otherwise I, I feel like my head was going to explode. Seriously, because I, I had to stall on making this for a day. I had a bad day because I was still pissed off about this show. <laughs>
And so when I came to Next Generation and started working here, I came from that. That was where I came from. I felt very much at home in this universe, and I was the one that really wanted it to live up to those roots and exceed those roots and push the limits of what Star Trek could be, because I knew what it was and the potential it had once had, and I wanted it to be better. I just think that we did some great television, entertaining television. I'm proud my name is on that show, and I'm very proud of the writers that I brought in to understand that great stories are about moral and ethical dilemmas, and then that in essence, the writers who write about the universe of Star Trek are really exploring the human condition. We were really, really blessed to play these characters. For most of my uh, acting career before Riker, I played really despicable human beings, drug dealers and father killers and uh, henpecked husbands and uh, brow-beaten weaklings and spineless characters and uh, villains and characters you wouldn't aspire to be as a, as a person. So being cast as Riker was really odd for me as an actor. And then to have the, the quality of writing that was consistently really, really high. I worked on a lot of television shows. The writing on Star Trek has been, and a lot of this credit goes to Berman and the way he, he you know, drives a, a writing staff. The writing was consistently of a level that we could be proud of. And the characters created by Roddenberry, certainly Riker, were, um, were honorable men. And we could do far worse. Wow, now that's saying something. Honorable men, and of course, honorable women. But I didn't really get any sense of that from any of the characters in the first three episodes of Discovery. I couldn't find anyone to either admire or to respect based on anything I saw. This seemed to be, to me, more a show about, not heroes, but about losers. <laughs> you know? it, it, it just wasn't Star Trek for me. The amount of cumulative plot development in the total of the first three episodes of Discovery didn't even approach that of the typical opener of a typical Star Trek episode. <laughs> you know, the part that's played before the credits even appear on the screen. Again, it sounds like the theme of this show, they're going to go into a big war, a ball of a conflict of arms, a long protracted serialized war, one would suppose. And that's nothing new to Star Trek either. Both Deep Space Nine did it, and Enterprise did it, and those were the two worst parts of those series, at least I thought so. Those were the serialized parts. Those were the parts that ran the better part of a season. So it's not like Star Trek never did this before. Mind you, they were still in a television environment, and that might not have been conducive to doing that then. But still, the stories were not up to par. Anyways, all I can say about the new Star Trek TV series so far is, hey, beam me up, Scotty. (laughs) We'll be beaming right back into your homes with a new episode one week from today when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Eureka!
I've done it. I've done what? The Earl of Sandwich invented the sandwich. Samuel Morse invented the Morse code. Plato invented the plate. <laughs> and now I, Holly, have invented the Holly Hot Drive. Ooh, I can't wait to see it. It's monumental, this. It's epoch-making. The Holly Hot Drive can transfer any object instantly to any other point in space. What? You mean we could go back to Earth? In a matter of seconds. What? You mean we could go back to Earth, like, right now? This instant? Right on. Rock and roll! Was this it? What do you think? It's just... It's just a box with stop and start on it. Right, let's holly hop. Engage drive, drive engaged. Initiating ignition sequence, ignition sequence initiated. Get on with it. it. Takes time, this. One slight error in any one of my 13 billion calculations. We'll all be blasted to smithereens. Here we go, then. Ten. Nine, eight, six, five. You missed out on seven. Did I? <laughs>